0: It's Thursday, October 7th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 579 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 1 hour and 5 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. I'm Brodor, and I'm VC. All right, so to explain who VC is if you're not familiar with this gentleman, Uh, VC is someone that is helping us with the writing of the Skies of Glass role-playing game. And the reason that VC is joining us is because in this episode, we are going to talk about playtesting and both what you as a creator want to look for and if you are involved in a playtest, what you can do to help the creator and what is the sort of things that the creators are looking for. And if you're interested in joining the Skies of Glass beta, you can do so at patreon.com slash fear the boot. If you have no interest in that, well, that's unfortunate, but still, I think this may be of interest to you because we're going to look at the nuts and bolts of how role-playing games are made and tested. And also I've been involved in several play tests for games that are not my own over the years. For yep. example, I'm uncredited, but I was actually in the five E play test back when it was still under another title. So We'll talk about a bunch of things here. All right, but before we do, Brodor, you're continuing to injure yourself. But fortunately, it wasn't an eye this time, because you can continue to function sans a leg. <laughs> I can function sans a leg. So I'm ambulatory, but
1: it is slow and quite painful. The weekend prior to the recording of this episode, uh, I was at a Come Try LARP event, which was a cr- <laughs> it was a crossover event between the four main sword and sorcery fantasy LARPs. And what it did is it stripped away the nuts and bolts, the classes, the spells, everything, all the rules with the exception of melee combat. And it took what were the most basic and safest rules out of these four and boils it down to here are the rules, right? And essentially they use the Amped Guard fighting rules and they ran multiple tournaments, but, I'm talking to people. I'm having a great time. I've got tons of audio and video content that I'm trying to roll through so I can start getting some stuff back, some content. So which Denny's was this at? Hold on. This was about 30-odd miles south of a place called Campton, Kentucky, over a six-hour drive that uh, I, I made to go to this LARP event to interview some people and talk about LARP. So, I assume a large outdoor park? So it was private land that is being renovated at literally four or five months ago where we were at was actual forest. So the people who own the property want to turn it into an event space for a variety of outdoor events up to including live action role play. So, one of the two event organizers knows the owner of the property, and I know the other event organizer very well. So, it's like Forest eat a dick, we're going to larp. Yeah, Forest eat a dick. We are going to put a DE in front of you. Same word. One word. We're just going <laughs> to add a DE and we're tear <laughs> down and throw in some gravel, and we're going to have precarious, narrow roads into the middle of nowhere where we're going to hit each other with sticks. The issue is this is that. Out of all the people that were there, it wasn't a huge crowd, but the consensus was that if you looked at the top 20 foam fighters or people that fought with boffer weapons in the United States, some of them were there. If you looked at the top 10, you might have had people that were in the top three. The caliber of competition at these events was incredible. I'm doing a whole big special for it for the Why We Game podcast. My point was... I'm talking to people. It's late Saturday night, and they've got what's called a ditch field set up. And so imagine a football field, but instead of a rectangle, a square. It's covered with thick grasses. There's just been a monsoon. Right. So this terrible hurricane came through the south, blew rain all through the Midwest, torrential downpours in this area the day before we show up. And this hundred yard square thing, people are fighting all night with big lights set up. They have gas power generators they are literally fighting until the wee hours of morning. I can hear a quarter mile away at my tent. Right. So I had finished interviewing this person named Seth. And then my buddy who I had gone with, Turek, I said, hey, Turek. I'm loose enough. There's, you know, everything's calmed down. Show me how this works. Right. So there's still some oh, guys out. Yeah. There's still some people out there fighting. And so then Seth comes over and says, hey, I'm too drunk to fight, but can I teach you? And Seth and I had really hit it off. And we were talking and we talked a lot over the weekend. And, uh, you know, I, I was I was into them. We had, or into them. We had a lot of fun. And so Seth pulls me aside and says, OK, so my buddy Turek and Seth are there. Seth is short for Seth Reel. And you know, Seth Reel's giving me the basics and explaining to me, you know, don't overcommit. The game's faster than you think. Da 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 now. I've lost a lot of weight in the last year, right? probably 30 odd pounds that I've lost. I've put on some muscle. I'm in better shape than I've been probably in three decades, right? I stretch every day. I do yoga. I lift weights. I mean, I'm not in great shape, but as my doctor says, when you're middle age, you just got to maintain, right? You have to get up and lift weights just so you don't get fat. Yeah. It's not about losing weight. It's about not being bigger than you are and being healthy. So I'm not out of shape and I do regular stretching. So I know it's too long already, but so Liz, which is Seth Reel's real name, I'm five foot, just under five foot nine. Seth is five foot nine. Exactly. I weigh 190 pounds. Seth weighs 100. I have an XY chromosome makeup. Seth has an XX chromosome makeup. Seth is very slender, right? Built for speed, not a curvaceous individual. And so, Pirate Captain Seth Real asks me if I'm ready, and I'm like, absolutely, I'm ready. And they swing at me, and they miss me, I swear to Christ, on purpose. I swing at me again, I swear to God they miss me on purpose. Swing at me a third time, I block it with my shield, right? Or my sword and board, if you will. I block it with my board, right? Because it's it's adopted, you know, wow, wow terminology. So... We're sparring. Seth is pressing. I'm backing up. I'm backing up. I decide that I'm going to switch gears, and I press the attack. And now I can squat really, really low to the ground, particularly someone of my age, right? Like, I could poop without touching my butt cheeks. (laughs) And... I'm fighting really low. I've got my basically my circular shield with a gore, right? So I'm holding the hand in the center of it. It's not a strap shield. It's a single hand hold shield, right? I'm blocking blows, blocking blows, blocking blows. And I step forward with my left foot low into the dirt, lunge with my hips, right? Swing my right hip, extend my right arm, which I know I don't look like it, but everyone there was like, well, let's measure your arms. They were like, dude, you're a fucking monkey. For somebody who's not even five foot nine, your arms are really, really long. And I was like, okay, whatever. So, Seth, maybe they let me have the shot. I don't know. But I drilled them into the side of the knee so hard you could fing hear it. Right? But then my left heel gives way and I cut a trench of mud the length from the bottom of my heel to the top of my belt in the mud. And I do the splits and i feel from my ass right from sciatic nerve to the inside of my knee i just feel this pull torque of pain and i know that i'm done and seth badass that they are steps away from me and says so we've reinforced one lesson don't overcommit. new lesson watch where you're fighting
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know they taught that same lesson in batman begins yeah both. They? yeah yeah it yeah. comes up at both the beginning of the movie and then it's restated at the end
1: mm-hmm. uh, mind
0: your surroundings or something to that effect so it's maybe a quarter mile back to
1: my tent it's you know i'm intoxicated it's rough terrain whatever a walk that should have taken me 10 minutes maybe took me a half hour 40 minutes to do it's brutal right the next morning fortunately I was able to strike my own camp. So my buddy Turk, who I went with, he asked me if I need, he turns around, he's like, do you need help striking your, and I'm f-ing done. And he's like, oh, okay. But I had gotten up long before him and yada yada. But yeah. but yeah, I, I learned many important lessons about boffer combat this weekend. It was super exciting. Yeah. Your leg looks horrible. Like it looks like it got actually physically hit with something. It hurts like hell, dude. And that's all from a it's literally all from one pulled muscle. That's it. That's all I did. I didn't get impacted. I didn't hit the ground hard at all when I struck. It just pulled my leg with such alacrity and such strength. It's just I mean I'm I'm hobbling like a like someone who is not 100%. <laughs> Could you seriously stop hurting yourself, Mike? No, no, man. Because my options are this. I'm in better shape than I've been in a really really long
0: time and I'm going to keep pushing myself until I can't. Right. See, I think I'm going to take a life insurance policy out on you not because <laughs> I necessarily have any plans to spend the money on anything, but it just seems like a really safe gamble seriously like yeah. the likelihood yeah. of you dying prematurely it right. just seems almost certain at this point it I mean, can
2: pay for the printing costs of skies of glass
0: yeah <laughs> no, yeah no for sure yeah it could
1: no kickstarter seriously. is what kickstarter is how you pay for the printing of skies of glass you don't do anything but kickstarter and publish inside the united states and but i mean we can get into all that when we actually start getting into the topic but a big thanks to Seth Real. I had a blast. I learned a lot, and that is one lesson that I shall not soon forget.
3: So I know that our uh, our bootcoin scam might be changing to a Brodor life insurance scam here, but uh, this is something we should come back to eventually. I'm just saying.
0: No, it's not a scam. All I have to do is show that I have any form of vested interest in Brodor. I mean, if,
1: if you can prove that my... And I don't know. I mean, you probably can. I I don't know. I'm not fishing for compliments. If you can prove that my participation in the podcast is important.
0: Yeah. So I can take like a half million dollar life insurance policy on you and probably cash out by the end of the year. I'm in. (laughs) I'll say you're already down one eye. You tried to down yourself another. Now you're taking out your hips and
1: bad back, shattered elbow, up leg. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. So. Topic for today, as I said, we're going to talk about playtesting, and there are a couple things that got us thinking about this, one of which is, as I said, we are currently in the process of both writing and simultaneously playtesting the Skies of Glass RPG, so there is more content coming out as we go through the iterations of alpha rules or beta rules or whatever. We are both fixing content but also adding new content to it. But I also know that several people on this podcast have participated in playtests, both the various homebrews. I mean, we could say that the three and a half year AP in Skies of Glass was a sort of playtest. But even that aside, you guys participated in the playtest of Blaze in the Dark because I know like Wayne, you and Chad and whatnot were playing that game before it was fully released. I was part of the beta for D&D 5e. So I know that
2: it's released the Fallout RPG. I've done a couple of them for Gage over with uh, Gaming with Gage. The most recent one was just this recent Thursday. And he's doing something this time that I think is a good idea that I want to recommend to people that are having playtests done. He made a anonymous survey that he's sending to everyone that goes through the playtest. With very specific questions. Because we've always talked about how hard it is to get feedback. So having specific questions... What are some of the questions that are on there? So specifically for this one that he's doing, there are different animals that you can play. So the first question, which animal did you play? Okay. Uh, That tells you a lot about the rules. What are two things that you think would have improved the rules around that animal? What are... Two things you would change about the scenario. He went through each individual encounter and specifically asked about questions about those encounters. Do you think this particular encounter added to the overall experience? Is there anything you would change about it? On a scale of one to five, did you enjoy this encounter? Ask for each individual part of the. Play test. Yeah. Because in his case, it's not just the overall rules. He was playtesting a scenario. Right. So for the scenario, each different part
0: of it, he tried to get feedback on. So, okay, I'll go ahead and link Gaming with Gage in the show notes. I don't know that this beta is open. So no, I, it's the, not yet. Okay, so there's nothing to link there. But I will at least link his podcast out of courtesy. Uh, now, fair warning, he is a Savage Worlds and Apple fanboy, so... You may get some kind of twisted world view from him. He's batting 500. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's batting zero. <laughs> but 500. The new Savage World is fantastic. They fixed everything I hated about it. Wow. Okay. Well, hey, you know, maybe I'll give it a check. So anyway, hmm. I think where I'm going to start with this is as someone who is looking for the response from the play test, one of the things that... I have to keep in mind, or I should say we have to keep in mind, is we do not necessarily know what feedback we are looking for. And here's why. Yes, I could enumerate some specific things. We want to know when people actually try out various character combinations or rules things, does the math go wildly off kilter? Is there a big hole in the rules? And some of these I'm sure we'll come back to and develop more later in the show. But I don't always know what I'm looking for for the simple reason that if you put out a movie or a novel or something like that, you know how people are going to interface with the product. They're going to read it. They're going to watch it. If you're testing a new restaurant, they're going to eat the food. But with a role-playing game, I do not know how people are going to interface with the product. What types of characters are people going to make? What types of situations are they going to get into? What types of rules conundrums are they going to hit up against that maybe need better clarification versus where are we talking on and on and on? Because idiosyncratically, our group got very deep into this, but the average group doesn't. And so. I think there has to be an open-mindedness. And this is where I'm not against Gage's survey. I think it's a great thing. But I would hesitate to lead with it because of the fact that you are shaping the sort of responses you're going to get because people are going to answer the questions. And you may never find out that the actual feedback you needed is not even a question you knew you needed to ask. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair.
2: It's It helps to have a questionnaire because it's hard to get people to give you any feedback. But really what we want is free form feedback. We want people to come to us with feedback on Skies of Glass based on what they saw. You know, when they look through the rule books, do they have a hard time reading it? We want to know that. If they tried out a specific stats and they didn't work for them, we want to know that. But we want to know what we don't know. And a big part of that is context. Yeah. Like, I don't know what system a group is used to playing when they come in. That's sometimes is a big
3: deal. What Wayne just said is a very big point, because when I sat down and tested this with my group of friends and we're we are a, I guess, for a lack of a better term, we're a basic bitch group. We like our D&D. We like our Pathfinder. We explore Call of Cthulhu and I force Delta Green on them pretty viciously over the last two years, which is because been fun. you're doing God's work and, and bless you because I am the DM and I will show you pick I bookshelf later. And uh, it is my sole duty to push things out to my players. But one of the things that I think my friends had a problem with, with uh, skies of glass, when we play tested it was they were not prepared for the level of lethality that came with it. And so after we got done going through it, Like Gage, I did ask specifically, like, how did you guys handle this based off what I saw them reacted to while playing, but also trying to get a bigger idea of, you know, what did you like, what didn't you like, and why?
2: Yeah, lethality is a big one with Skies of Glass. And that's one of the conversations we've talked about having with our groups when we're getting ready to play games is, do you want character death to be a part of the game or not? In Skies of Glass, it needs to be. Yeah.
0: Well, and... This is going to tie into my next point, which is there's a very odd balance in that you need to take the feedback you're getting seriously because, first of all, if you don't, why bother playtesting? But also because of the fact that these people are going to give you important information on how people are interacting with this that, once again, you may not have known, you may not realize that 90% of people are going to play the game in a way that's different than how you do. But I think there is also a bit of a filter you have to give yourself, which is editors are not always right. And sometimes you have to look at the things that people are saying, and just as you have to accept your own idiosyncrasies, you have to accept theirs. You have to sometimes say, you know what, this particular thing... I understand why it's bothering this person, but it's an intended part of the game experience. This is something that most people agree works. You cannot act on every bit of advice you get. And if you try to, the game is going to lose focus. It's going to get confused. And you're going to be chasing your own tail, trying to input every bit of feedback you get, as opposed to filtering through that for the trends, for the things that a lot of people are having an issue with. And right, you
3: got to sort out what what is the most common thing versus why didn't I get my town.
0: Right, exactly. And so in the case of Skies of Glass, it's supposed to be a lethal game. So will I, or we at any point, rewrite the rules to be less lethal? No, probably not. But could we include a sidebar or an appendix that says, okay, for people who want a less brutal game, here's some tweaks you can make to get it there. What I was going to say
1: is, is that my playtesting experience is limited to two things, three things, excuse me. Playing Skies of Glass with you. I have a friend who runs a fifth edition DD game every other week, and it is heavily steeped in Greek mythology. And he's written all new classes and things based on, you know, the the OGL for 5E, all of the open material. So I do that, and then I wrote a module for the soon to be released Rest in Pieces for Imagining Games and Pete Petruccia. But I think my expertise is going to come from sort of the marketing perspective. That's really the reason I'm involved in the project, is because I have that level of experience. And I have to tell you. I mean, first and foremost, that kind of sidebar is essential for a game today. Because if you look at the zeitgeist of games, they are getting simpler, less rules, more kind of free form, and much more narrative driven. And so I think that Skies of Glass does two things really well it is not rules heavy but the rules are complicated enough that there's enough to dig your teeth into to kind of manipulate things and make a character that is or is not one-dimensional. But I think it is essential that when you make your game, these are our designers' nodes. So basically, if you took Dark Souls and you put a story mode on it, most people think that that's anathema, but I don't care because I want to make sure that my game's approachable to everybody, and I've considered that. Even if they're not interested in a post-apocalyptic game, if they say, I am interested in a post-apocalyptic game, oh, and there is a module that I plug in that's in a sidebar that I can make the game less lethal, I am more inclined to give money to buy that game because I'm more likely to play it. We want to
3: offer the salad bar... Not necessarily an all-you-can-eat salad.
1: Right, right. And you make it clear that that's not how you intend how you want the game to be run. That's not what your thing is, and it's a sidebar, and it's a different color, and the prints, the text is a different size or different color. I don't know, right? But people know that if I want to do that, that's the thing. But the people who wrote the game, this is how they intended it to be presented at my table.
0: Yeah. You know, in fact, I think some of the best addendums I have seen to RPGs are collections of house rules or tournament rules that have bubbled to the top. Agreed. Where game companies go back and they look at how people are playing the game and they realize 75% or 50%, you know, some large percentage of our players have all house ruled something about the same way. Oh, yeah. And that's picked up memetically across the internet, you know, and people are all using this. Why not go ahead and make this a fixed part of the game, or adjust the game to work with that in the first place, and balance it and test it against the other things that are in there?
2: So house rules are an interesting thing when it comes to house rules. If someone's doing a play test of something and they're introducing house rules to it, then if you're creating the game, you want to know what those house rules were. What yeah, did they feel? A, that- I'm sorry, that's just a play test that's suggestion, right? Yeah, it's not a house rule. It's just like, hey, let's change it. Essentially, yeah, because you want to know if somebody has come up with something, then that's a sign that they didn't find something they needed within the system itself. If I'm running a play test for someone, I think I would avoid doing house rules because I want to test out the system that they are presenting me. It gets down to if you're running a play test of a system. Why are you running that play test? And I think there's different reasons people run them. Some of them are just because this game looks like fun and I want to play it with my players. Those people aren't as interested in giving the feedback. They just want to have fun playing the game. Yeah. There are other people that the point of playtesting it is I want to provide feedback so the final product is a better product. And those are the people that are more likely to give you the feedback. I think you need to find ways to try to get feedback from both groups, though. The people that are just playing for fun... They may be more likely to do things like doing house rules and trying out things the
0: other group isn't. Yeah, and I think part of that goes back also to what I was saying earlier with you have to understand your editors are fallible. You may be getting feedback from someone that's pushing your game in a radically different direction because they're not the intended audience. They didn't know that going into it because it's a play test. It's a first pass. This is the first time they've interacted with the game. But what they want out of it is not something that you can provide just as a sidebar. But what they're looking for is an experience that is not even intended to be a part of the game. A game cannot be all things to all people. It has to be something. Now, compared to other forms of entertainment, it is broader and more easily twisted and turned to flavor. But there still are limits to what it can do. And you know, not all games are for all people. Yeah, one thing
2: that I've found as a player when I'm helping someone who's running a play test of their system, I like to find parts of the system that haven't been tested as well. So I'm going to use an example of the last Epoch of Rysos game that Dan ran. I didn't particularly have an interest in the mental abilities around the species, the Asta, but they hadn't been tested because nobody ever played them. Yeah. So I specifically went out of my way to get those abilities because I wanted to give it the play test because I hadn't seen anyone play test those in that version of the rules.
1: In the 5e grease game that I play in, it was pretty much the game master pitched the character classes. And then as characters, as people have come in and out of the game, as people have died and made new characters, we've deliberately done exactly that to go out of our way to try things that are new that have yet to be exposed to the game. I mean, in fact, I think my character class is just, just a step back. Like if the line for broken is here, my <laughs> class is one step away from broken because I fucking kill. One of the things that when
3: uh, I ran the playtest for my group, Yes, they liked the lethality of the system. They really dug into the world that we were presenting to them. One of my players actually knew where I was setting the playtest, and they were really amped up to see what happened to my hometown. The other playtester was completely oblivious, but was just sucked into the world. But one of the things that when I asked for feedback that I wasn't expecting on getting from them was, for lack of a better term, the home version of sky's glass the building of your base the building of the group they use that instead of improving themselves they use that group worksheet to improve their town almost like they were trying to kingdom build the post-apocalyptic
2: yeah and to be honest with the post-apocalyptic game that's kind of something i want that i've never really had the opportunity in a role-playing game to explore But I think Skies of Glass could do it really well. That is the community building and
3: rebuilding. A different subject, finding a gem like this, like that concept that you didn't expect. Like when I sat down to run a playtest for Skies of Glass, I was hoping I would get my version of the AP, which did not happen. (laughs) I had somebody go through a window with a radio tower. But I expected there to be post-apocalyptic, you know, Wild West blood guts gore and what i got was almost organ trail apocalyptic and i i wonder if that was just my perception of what i'm used to gaming with and what my players wanted from the system or if it was something else
2: one thing i found interesting back at this was fear the con three i think i ran a skies of glass game in two different slots The exact same setup, the same scenario, same players, well, the same characters for two different groups of players. They approached the game entirely different and the feel was different between the two, even with the same setup and the same GM. And I think that's one of the important things about playtest. Dan has created the system. If he were the only one that was running the game and only running it for a handful of people then you're never going to get those experiences of what other groups and what other GMs are going to think about it.
3: Yeah, you you don't have a big enough buffet to try food from.
0: Yeah, well, and that's the up and downside of having a scenario included with the playtest. If you just present the game and see what people do with it, then the feedback you get may be a bit scattered, unfocused, maybe a little uneven, because people aren't exactly sure how to interface with the game particularly because at this point, it's half-written and it's also unreleased, so there is no prevailing culture that presupposes this is what a game of DD and d looks like. You, know, you don't have that sort of Lord of the Rings template that kind of defines this is what you're expecting out of the play experience. And if you include a scenario or a test module, it helps better communicate what sort of thing you're looking for in the game, which, once again, is particularly useful because the rules are half-written. So you you have a way of communicating these are the types of tasks we're trying to deal with versus these are the ones the game really doesn't deal with in detail. But I think the downside to that is you're also building in presuppositions, that you are presupposing everyone being at a similar starting point And maybe not the same ending, but at least the same few first steps. And so you kind of point people on the same general trajectory, and you only get a a limited read on where they're going to go with that trajectory. Yeah, Something
2: we haven't done, because we haven't presented a scenario, but one thing that is very useful for some scenarios that I've seen in finalized books is they walk you through the mechanics of the game. And I know a lot of groups, when they get a book, they'll run through that scenario before they do their own campaign, just as a way to learn the rules and learn how the system works before they start doing their own characters.
3: Right. You're tutoring the game before you commit to it.
2: Yeah, I could see that being useful in a playtest, but I could also see it not being useful in a playtest for the very reason of
1: your then kind of outlining how people go. It probably goes without saying, but I'm me, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. When we're talking playtesting, I presume that we're discussing the mechanics of the game. The fluff doesn't need to be tested. Obviously, the fluff needs to be edited, and it needs to make sense, and there are things that you might want to change, and I'm sure people will provide feedback that would be interesting, Uh, certainly things that you had not conceived, but when you are playtesting it, I mean, you're you're trying to come up with scenarios so that you can utilize all of the mechanics and make sure that they balance
0: with one another, right? Well, I would say to me, it's kind of become a 90-10 sort of thing where it seems like without some amount of fluff, people don't understand what the game is supposed to be about.
2: Yeah. I'm going to use Blades in the Dark as an example. When we were playing it through... Without it being fully published, there's a lot of proper names and nouns being put in about powers that were not defined. Yeah, and you actually had to, when you were testing the system, you had to have the setting information because that's so you one just thing. Played you're Dishonored, t- <laughs> I'd never played Dishonored, <laughs> but you have to have for some systems, for some settings, that information in there because. You're playtesting whether your description of the setting is good enough.
0: Yeah, well, and also, like I said, if you don't at least give an elevator pitch, people may not understand what sort of world you're trying to create. And some games have this already built in. If I was doing a playtest for a brand new version of Star Wars, I would have the benefit of not having to explain up front what the Star Wars setting is. You know, everyone already kind of knows that within the cultural gestalt, even if they don't have Wikipedia memorized backward and forward, people at least get the touch points of lightsabers and Jedi and Star Destroyers and whatever, you know, they can at least recognize these things. Well, something like Skies of Glass, if we don't present at least a little bit of the fluff or the fiction, then you say post-apocalyptic or post-nuke, what are people going to think? Skies of Glass is very different than, say, Fallout or Mad Max is. And so you have to kind of hone in a little bit on what it is that you're trying to convey. But I do think there is a reverse problem of you can get so into the fluff that instead of developing the parts of the world people are interacting with, you're just drowning them in setting wank. That maybe you really care about, and maybe even should be there in the final product. But for a play test, they don't need, you know, they don't need to know the details of, let's take Skies of Glass once again as our example. Knowing exactly what is within the Jacksonville NAS is interesting, but do you really need to understand it beyond knowing it's a pre war high tech? subdivision of society that's walled itself off and preserved a pre-war civilization right and then that's really enough to kind of get the gist of what it is yeah i think there could be
2: an argument made for well we want to play in that city but that's not the core game right
0: that would be a expansion setting book
2: well and that's because it needs to be developed
0: to that point well and if i develop the game that way where i dump certain bits of fluff on them or a lot of fluff on them if people don't get lost in there, they may instead get fixated and say, well, there's all this information on Jacksonville, so that's where all the interesting stuff is, because that's where everything's developed, and so that begins to be how people play the game. Whereas right,
3: if, you're, you're putting a beacon on it, and that's drawing attention.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas, opposed to if we just give people the salad bar, to use your metaphor, then instead they can kind of walk along that pick-and-choose. And then we start to get an understanding of these are the things people are latching on to. And by extension, these are the things we're going to want to develop, not just in the rules, but also in the setting later on. So I do agree that I think setting should mostly be at the end of the conveyor belt. But I don't think I would put it entirely at the end of the conveyor belt.
1: Yeah, but no, I mean, opening up the book, right? Let's assume that our Word document, right, has a good table of contents and a good index. Because if your game does not have this, I will not be involved. <laughs> I will tell you a
2: play test document probably will not have an index. The final product has to have an index.
1: Yeah, it has to. If your role-playing game doesn't have a table of contents and an index, I am less likely to buy it.
2: Completely agree. But indexes are so difficult to do that they're not going to be in a playtest. Well, document. that's
1: why you contact Ruben and you're like, Ruben, yeah. we need somebody to do what it is that you do professionally for the final product. Yeah. yeah, not for a playtest. Yeah. Well, now for me personally, I, I mean, yeah, because as long as it's a searchable document, right? Sure. I'm fine. Yeah. But if I have a hard copy in front of me, it's it's
0: not, it's not forgivable. Well, yeah. It. And also, a playtest document is not going to have had layout done, is not right. going to have art added. Yep. A playtest right. document, to be blunt, is going to be a lot harder to read. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think people doing the playtest need to be prepared for, is you really cannot do the art, the layout, a lot of that stuff, until you know what sort of shape the final product's going Absolutely. to be. Absolutely. And so you are going to get a document that may be a bit harder to navigate, a bit harder to read, that it's going to take more effort on your part to play this game. It's going to take a little more investment on your part. So first things first, what is the world, right? So let's say, and
1: again, this is a very, very crude description. So please, you know, indulge me, but let's say Walking Dead Take out the zombies, add nuclear war, add some kick-ass technology that was behind us, right? And now we need to survive. And different states of the world are in different levels of technological advancement and security, right? I need to know that out of the gate. right? Right.
2: Well, and that's one thing as we looked at the book itself. Initially, our thoughts were we want to go straight into character creation. But some of the feedback we got, and this was very valid feedback... People were saying that they would have problems with the character creation if they didn't have some setting information first.
3: Yeah, we have to know where we're walking into.
2: Exactly. If we're saying, here's how you create your character, but you don't know what the world is like that you're creating your character in, you can't really create that character.
1: Yeah, you have a blurb at the beginning that says, you know, because a lot of role-playing games do the same thing, have a similar structure, and I think it works well, where you start out and saying, hey... If you're new to this thing, this is what dice are. And this is what a role-playing game is. Now, if I was skies of glass and I'm not saying that to be arrogant or gatekeepy, but if I was skies of glass, I would basically say, look, if this is your first role-playing game, thank you. I'm so happy that you got into this hobby and this was the game you picked up. However, it may not be where you want to start. This is what a role-playing game is. This is the dice that you need. Da 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 da. But if you're learning to drive, you're not getting an F-15. Not with
3: that attitude, you're not.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, but but VC, you know exactly what I what I mean. Right? I, I if, mean,
3: and I made sure that when we started out the document that we did actually have that section in there. Right. Because when I was in college, I was the president of a gamers club, and I had to teach people D&D, some people who had never even heard of it. And I didn't realize then how bumpy that road is to somebody who doesn't have the full understanding of what a, a tabletop RPG is, to explain to them, this is what you're doing. I'm trying to get you to play pretend with me, but with some barriers.
2: Every game is going to be somebody's first game. Skies of Glass was my first game. It was my
0: But you played with the
1: creator. Play. True.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah, he was playing with an experienced group. But yeah, he is. How dare you start off with a hot blonde and
1: big boobs? Dear God, Wayne. (laughs) I think everybody within the sound of my voice gets my point. (laughs) My point is, is that you need to explain to what it is. Sure. All right. There are. I, I would certainly caution somebody that this not be your first game unless dan and wayne and chad and you know
0: <laughs> yeah and, and your Ouija board with pat are teaching you how to f- play yeah say for pure marketing reasons i think i would rather include an intro to rpgs chapter that veteran role players can skip as opposed to scourging people to play the game but your point is not lost on me i do understand that skies of glass is in many ways it's not i would say a quote-unquote advanced game in the sense that the rules are super difficult or the concepts are super difficult, but the arc of play has a particular lack of forgiveness to it that I think would make it a rough ride if this was the first RPG everyone at the table had played.
1: Let me rephrase that because obviously from the sense of selling books, I want to sell books to everybody, right? So I don't want to discourage people from picking up the game, but I want people to understand that there is significantly less forgiveness and wiggle room in this game, and that it is very, very difficult to pull your punches.
0: Yeah, and no, I'd agree with you, which is why several years back when I ran an intro to RPGs thing, At Fear of the Con, first slot, so if anyone was there who came to the con on a lark or was drugged there by a significant other and they had no context what an RPG was, they could start here and I was going to explain to them this is what dice are, this is how you read the XDX notation, you know, 4D6 notation. This is what it means to have structured, collaborative, make-believe... And I did it with what's called a pocket mod, which is a one-sheet, folded-up game that turns into a tiny little book where people played ferrets. We didn't even do d and D. I I started with this simple, simple one-page RPG that had barely more complexity than, say, something like Lasers and Feelings. And the setup is you're all pet ferrets trying to get medicine to the family's dog, because the family's out and won't get home in time to save the dog from whatever its health condition was. Everybody can relate to this concept. You know, you don't have to be three miles deep in geek culture to understand what it looks like when animals can talk and think like people and go about mischief around the house. If you've seen Disney, you get this concept. And so, no, your your point is fair taken. Yeah, there is a section in there that probably
2: will be developed a little bit more. That is basically what makes Skies of Glass different, and I think that covers both of those.
1: I like that a lot, and I I like that. Hey, if you're new to role playing games, here's the thing: if you want, to skip this section and jump right to where is Skies of Glass different, and then read where is Skies of Glass different, and then you go into a brief history of the world enough that I have enough background that I want to make a character.
0: Right. Or get an idea. Right. And then we save the setting dump, the big setting dump for yeah. later on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because we want to get you into the game as quickly as possible. Let's talk about rules development. When you're deciding what to write or what to comment on or whatever, there are generally two things that I think should be looked at. One is something I mentioned earlier, which is look at where the bell curve of interests and questions are falling. What is the one thing people are most interested in? Laser guns. Look for the, and maybe it is, you know, maybe people, yeah. This in St. Louis. That is the big one we're getting with skies of glass. It's actually not a rules question. It's a setting question, which is what is an IST? And people want more information, as V.C. said, on how we've developed in the,
1: in the West, we call them libertarians.
0: <laughs> but the other thing that I would look at is remember that you, as the creator, have your own needs, that you are a human being. And so sometimes it feels good to temporarily ignore the bell curve and go after the low-hanging fruit because having something done and checked off feels better than having something a third of the way in, halfway in, two-thirds of the way in, and it feels like this endless climb up Mount Everest because it's a large, complicated part of the game. Now, you got to get up there to the balls. Just get all the way in. And so when we look at the feedback, yes, we look at the bell curve, but sometimes we just look for the quick kill items. We kind of skip past that and say, you know what, we need to get some more out there we need to feel better about what we're doing because we're human beings as well. And this is not the primary job for any of us. This is a side gig. And so it's like, you know what? Let's just get some quick kill items done just so we can have more information out there. The players feel like they're getting more and we feel like we're accomplishing something.
3: Honestly, Dan, working on Skies of Glass as we have, to me, reminds me a lot of when I used to work in a kitchen. With everything you just said, emphasizing and echoing that, especially in a busy kitchen like around, let's say, oh, Super Bowl season. There's going to be a lot of orders coming in for what people want. And whether that's you, me, and Wayne looking at what's on the list of things that we need to work on and going, these four things are easy. Dan, take care of that. Wayne, this is a little complicated, but it's something we definitely know you can handle. And I'll take these items over here and how we divvy it up. It echoes back to what you said. These things are very easy to take care of. That's spelling error. That's grammatical. That's, you know, setting stuff that we can easily just throw out there and be done with it. And us as the cooks feel good. We're accomplishing something. We're getting those orders out. We're getting food to the people and people are staying happy.
2: And sometimes there's just a case of passion. If there is some part of the system or setting that you have passion for. I know I have economy of energies. When I have energy, I need to use it and put it towards something. Yeah. So if I suddenly have energy on something, a good example, when it comes to skies of glass, I love GCs. So if, if I have energy for writing about GCs, and I have no energy for writing about something else, maybe the something else is more important, but I'm going to be happier if I write a couple paragraphs on GCs.
0: Have you ever heard the spoons exercise? Oh, yeah. Okay, so to explain this for anyone who hasn't heard the spoons exercise, I don't know where this first came from. I'm sure a hit to Google would make it pretty easy to find, but I'm not going to pause the episode to look this one up. But someone was trying to explain psychological social physical bandwidth to someone they were trying to basically explain what it's like to struggle through a day and they were apparently i believe sitting in a coffee shop or a restaurant or something and they would looked at the table and what they saw was a bunch of spoons so they gathered the spoons up and said okay so based on my life i have this many things i have to accomplish in the day and they treated the spoons like a form of currency So I have to get up in the morning, get ready for work, and get the kids ready for school. And based on how many kids you've got and how easy or difficult they are to interact with and all this stuff, that this is going to drain me of X number of spoons. And then doing this other task, being at work, is going to drain me of X number of spoons. And then I have a friend who hits me up because they're having a crisis, and I want to be there for them. But that still is a drain on my time and emotion. It's a worthwhile one, but still, it is a drain on your time and emotion. And so that costs a certain number of spoons. And the point of this is that we all have a finite economy. And depending on your circumstances, you may have a lot of spoons because you're an energetic, bouncy person, or you may not have that many spoons because you're... Some, or somebody's got a bunch of Adderall
1: tablets and 510s and 20 mil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, gotcha. okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Substance abuse is a different thing. Yeah. but but yeah, I... Odor comes with a shovel. <laughs> but, but let's say you're an introvert, and on top of that you've got a psych disorder or two or maybe a physical disorder or two, your spoons that you're starting with may be fewer. Or you could model it the other way of saying a task that costs you one spoon, might cost me five because it's that much harder for me to do right have you heard the oh, fork
3: have
2: you heard the fork theory
0: no well, let me finish the spoon thought okay. because wa- of, the fork theory grows off of the spoon i theory. want to hear the fork theory but let me finish this thought while well, you two are forking and spoon and mike and me be over here with knives but yeah the Stripper zippers but that's, that's hooker,
1: zippers, sir. strippers are still people. I would never, I'm kidding. I way I'm a much bigger fan of prostitutes than I am strippers because stripping is a lie, but that's a subject for a negative episode.
0: But the, the, the point being that you as a creator have to be mindful of what you have to offer. And well, once you know, again, especially as individuals where we all have day jobs, we've got families, we've got other things going on. You know, this is part of the reason I've not put this on Kickstarter is because I want to develop this, but I do not want a gun to my head. I don't want to feel like I'm screwing people or whatever if I'm not keeping a certain pace because I will burn myself out because there are a lot of things going on, many of which I don't talk about on the show. Some of which because they're personal, others because I want to talk about gaming, not whine about woe is me, my personal life. This isn't Dan's pity party. But, you know, I have a finite number of spoons and sometimes there's a section of the rules or the setting that I can knock out for one spoon either because it's short and easy or because, like Wayne said, I already have a passion for it. I don't have to work up a bunch of emotional preparation under this big wad of inertia to hit that target. So the
2: fork theory is kind of like the spoon theory only in reverse. Instead of having spoons you're giving away, it's you start your day. And then as you have struggles, you have forks being stabbed into your skin. You can accept the pain for a while as you go on, but you get to a point where the what, this final spork is too much. Yeah. But you've got all of these forks in different places. Maybe if you take the fork off of your shoulder you now can handle a couple other forks in other places. Right. Because the shoulder one is giving you pain when you're trying to lift something. Very similar concept, except this is piling on the pain, and it takes into account that if you can focus on the things that are hurting you the most, sometimes that frees you up to be able to do more or be able to take more.
0: Let let me give a behind-the-scenes truth. Now, Wayne and VC already know this to be true. But this is going to be a behind-the-scenes truth to the listeners, I assume. Some of you people may have already pieced this together. Gamers tend to be intelligent and observant people. I have this horrible trait, I guess good and horrible, it's a mixed bag, that I tend to give the most attention to the squeaky wheel. Not necessarily the most important wheel, but the squeakiest yeah. wheel. Whatever the loudest problem is, it's most front and center to me, is where I tend to put my energy. And oftentimes the result is I misspend my energy and I poorly prioritize or burn myself out, or to Wayne's point, I drive a dozen sporks into my skin or forks or whatever the metaphor is when that's way beyond my pain threshold. Which is why, while I'm doing my share of the writing, the feedback is mostly collected and collated by VC and then discussed with Wayne and only then presented to me, at which point I am now hearing it in a more neutral tone, and I can make much more educated choices about this is worth our time, this isn't, this bit of feedback's useful, this bit is kind of useful, this bit, I understand their concern, but I don't think they grok the game. We're just not going to deal with it because of the fact that it allows me to weigh it in a way that has no social burden, no emotional burden. I just get it as neutral information. Here's the 20 items on a checklist. I don't have somebody, and there's nothing wrong with this. I appreciate anyone who has passion for the game, even if they see it with a different vision than I do. You know, there are games I run that I run with a different vision than the creators had. Look, Blades in the Dark was heavily borrowed, to put that in very loose (laughs) quotes, probably more than borrowed from Dishonored, (laughs) but the way Chad runs it, he pushes it even more in that direction than John Harper did.
2: And yes, so, he adds back in things from Dishonored yeah, that were removed.
1: Yeah. The three things that were removed to avoid lawsuit, which I don't think were necessarily enough, and I'm not a lawyer, I'd have to ask my dad, but Chad has just put those back into the game so it's even more different than what John Harper designed.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, But more akin to yeah. what inspired John Harper. Right. But the point is, John Harper, whether for reasons of copyright concern or because he just felt it didn't belong in his vision of Dishonored, there aren't tall boys on it. Right. That's just a simple example. There is no more sun. In Dishonored, the sun is still there and functioning normally. There's a different apocalypse unfolding, but it does not have to do with the sun going out, at least not in Dishonored 1. Maybe that happens in Dishonored 2. I, I honestly don't know. But the point being, though, that you have to treat yourself as a finite resource and allocate yourself accordingly to make any progress. Otherwise, I mean, look, how many great novels have never made it past the first chapter? Right. They didn't have
3: enough people absorbing the forks and giving somebody the spoon.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And
2: some things eventually bubble through, I think. One of the big changes in this latest version of the skies of glass rules was that you had gotten the feedback and it eventually bubbled all the way up of it is too easy to hit. Yeah. The base number makes it way too easy to hit somebody with while shooting them. And so it got changed in the latest version to increase the difficulty
0: to hit somebody. Yeah. And I'm contemplating an even higher change but i'm waiting to hear the feedback on the change we made before i make a bigger change and that's something else i think that's worth noting is based on the feedback you get i love using this metaphor of the moonlander game i've used it several times in the course of this show's history for anyone who's just joining the show or not remembering what i'm talking about there were these games that you could get like going all the way back to like the atari now I've seen them even like in uh, the St. Louis Science Center and such, where you have a little moon lander that's like under the tiniest amount of gravity pull towards some base. And you have to try and land on the landing pad. And human nature is, because you're not dealing with air resistance or a lot of gravity, people tend to overcorrect. And so when you want a little tiny burst to the left, you instead tend to do a hard burn, and now you're just shooting all over the place. And even if you do a tiny little burst to the left, well, because there's not that much gravity and there's no noticeable drag on the ship, you continue drifting left until you do a counter burn. Just a little pop to boost you the other way. But human nature is to overcorrect. And so when you get that feedback, try doing moderate to small tweaks before you go whole hog, On ripping out and rewriting sections. Maybe a section is a lost cause. Maybe it just needs some tweaks. The combat stuff is one example. People have observed, and correctly so, it is way too easy, especially in a game this lethal, to to hit somebody. Yes. And even if you compare this to real world shooting statistics from like the FBI and such, people are hitting way more often than real human beings in combat situations ought to be able to hit. Even trained individuals should not be hitting this often. And that number needs to go up. It was a base of six. I took it up to a nine. I contemplated taking it up to 12. But it's like, no, let's not overcorrect yet. But you could do this with other things. Someone could say, well, I'd love it if in the setting you develop something. And you could try leading off with a few paragraphs and see who bites you don't have to immediately stop and do 30 pages of a full brain dump. Well, no, I think that that's good
1: advice, Dan. I think that the, you know, bringing it down to its smaller component parts. Yeah,
0: right, the because, MVP, the minimum viable product.
1: Right, right. I mean, for example, at my house in my, in my 3.5 D&D Midnight game, I just, we're gaming, we're playing, da, da 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 And I rolled a nat 1 for my monster or whatever. The, an, an NPC that's it's challenging the party. I rolled a natural 1. And I was like, hey, do you still have your AO, your attack of opportunity for the turn? And my player's like, yeah, I do. I was like, cool, take your AO. What do you guys think about the rule that when you roll a natural 1,
0: you provoke an you attack provoke, of opportunity. If you're in melee
1: and you don't drop your weapon or some dumb bullshit that we have to adjudicate, you provoke an AO. So if there's any opponent that's within range that has an AO, you rolled that nat one, you provoke an AO, done. Dubai players love it. It's been a blast because it happens to me more than it happens to them because I'm rolling dice way more than they are. They're almost inevitably outnumbered in every encounter. It's been a blast. You
0: know, and I think there's a sub point you raise there. It's probably a good place to end this on, which is when you're prepping for a play test, The main thing you have to go after is what I just said is the MVP, the minimum viable product. What is the base set of things that are necessary for someone to play this game? This is where you have to get very, very picky and be a little bit hard on yourself of saying, okay, there's a lot of things that should be here, but what is the real minimal stuff that I can offer that allows someone to create a character to play the basic intended game cycle and to be able to have a view on that. If we were talking about D&D, that might be nothing more than saying, okay, here's how you get your hit points, here's how you get your two-hit number, here's a pre-selected set of weapons, armor, equipment, and spells, and there's only three spells for each class, You know, a damage, a healing, and a utility spell or something like that. This is the really most stripped-down version of D&D we can give you where people can play it and give you some sense of how it's working. And then you add complexity to that. And people might say, well, wait a minute, I want to run my own shop, or I want to deal with mass combat, or I want to buy my own equipment or create my own magical items. There's no rules for that. That's fine. We can come back and get those, and maybe we should. You got to prioritize because a book does need to be finite in length, but at least start with a game that is playable end-to-end, even if there's holes in it. To use an example from Blades in the Dark, when that game shipped, or in the early betas, I mean, not shipped as a product, it's my understanding that you had the basic material to make a gang, to make a character from a handful of classes. You only had one type of gang to choose from. Yeah, there was one gang, there was a limited set of character playbooks or character archetypes, and you could do a basic run and then do the downtime and then start the cycle over again. And there was a lot of bells and whistles that were missing that have been added.
2: There was one thing there that I do want to hit on real quick before we end. Playing through that version, there were a lot of new versions of the rules coming out, and we would try to adopt the new versions of the rules after having been playing in a campaign mid-game, and it made it really difficult to enjoy the game. As someone who wants people to try the newest version of the rules... I also don't want them messing up their game by trying to throw out what everybody's used to for a new some massive new rewrite.
3: Right. We still want you to keep the bathwater. We're just adding in a loofah. Calm down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well maybe you do have to throw out the bathwater, but I think once again I'd say hesitate I'm not to go there. To <laughs> Don't rush into
1: that, dude. I am. I know. I'm not. No. I am. I mean, like, I'm an everyday bather. Like, I'm a clean guy, man. So you can bathe after me. I, it won't be too bad.
0: Well, stupid uh-huh. bit of side trivia. Do you know where the phrase "throw the baby out with the bathwater" came from? I do not. So when they used to draw a bath, because they had to bring the water in from outside and even heat it inside the home, because they didn't have running water, it was this big ordeal to fill a bathtub. And what would happen is the typically the father would bathe first then the mother, then the eldest child, the next eldest child, so on and so forth. And they would all bathe in the same water. So by the end of it, they were doing the youngest member of the family, which now, understanding hygiene and medicine better, should actually <laughs> be flipped. You should probably be bathing the baby first. But when the bath water was ready to be dumped out, the baby was the last one in there. Ah. And so that's where the... Throw the baby out with the bathwater so
1: baby is steeping in the feces mud urine combo yeah. <laughs> from from woodstock ninety nine there's just this sludge unfortunately, yeah, yeah. within that era,
0: yeah. which wouldn't be woodstock be earlier than that but yeah uh,
1: i I went camping I took a shower in a cold water gravity shower and I tell you what man when I got home late Sunday night that hot shower
0: oh yeah oh my God it was beautiful i and brought your
1: balls back. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, I have the same neurosis. I actually tend to shower twice a day because I'm a little cat in that regard. I just have to be so perfectly clean or it bothers me. Anyway, enough about our insanities. So, check the show notes for a couple things. We will link to the Patreon if you want to get involved in the playtest. We'd love to have you. If not, totally cool. We'll link to Gaming with Gage since we picked on him a bit. I will also link to Brodor's podcast. Uh, so you can go out there and keep up with his Why We Game stuff, because he's got some things coming on his great big mistake known as LARPing and...
1: Dude, I fell in love. Like, I'm you know, like I'm in. Sunday morning, I made my character.
0: I'm sorry. We'll get Broder therapy, don't you guys worry. I promise you, we will get him the help he needs We're surrounded by, well, I guess friends, because his family's kind of a mess, but... Don't worry, Broder, we'll <laughs> get you a real Denny's. Thanks, man. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games. And we will catch you next time. See ya. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2021. Listeners are free to use this episode in a non-commercial endeavor, so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. If you wish to support this show and its related endeavors, you can do so at patreon.com slash feartheboot.